This is Podcast, the sound of fundamental research. It's a great honor for us to, to welcome uh, Professor John Komaroff, who is Professor of African and African American Studies and Anthropology at the University of Harvard. Uh, he is here for a week. I think uh, it's not uh, necessary to introduce him because everybody will know his work and it would take me a very long time to uh, talk about all he has done. He has done this marvelous book uh, of Revelation and Revolution together with his wife Jean, with whom he has written several other books like Law and Disorder in the Post-Colony, Ethnicity, etc. Um, John is a person who has been a great inspiration for medieval historians. Uh, and that's why we are here, because this is a medieval project on civil wars in a comparative perspective, where we have a lot of uh, modern scientists coming in, uh, anthropologists, political scientists, etc. And um, I think the book that has inspired medieval historians most is the book called Rules and Processes, which dates back to 1986, which he wrote together with Simon Roberts, which was very crucial in medieval studies in turning upside down the question of order and the state. It really showed, uh, and a lot of medieval historians used uh, their models of how order is also something that can be acquired without courts and constables. Uh, and that is also why we invited him and why he has come here. He has been here for a week and we have been talking for many hours on the drafts that we are making, which he will comment upon also in the volume that we will make uh, as our uh, final contribution here this year. So we are very happy to have you here and John is going to talk about conflict and uh, order disorder among Chwana in colonial and post-colonial South Africa. Please. Well, um, first and foremost, I should like to thank Hens uh, Jakob and Nobi Sauer and um, uh, for really inviting me and for including me um, in this project um, on Nordic civil wars in the High Middle Ages. Um, they and everyone else in the project have been extraordinary hosts to me. Uh, it's kind of difficult to have a septuagenarian tied to a red wheelbarrow, sort of wandering around your halls over and over. Although I finally found a use for it. Camilla has been using it for moving files. So I feel much better about having this damn thing. Um, I, this, I found this an extraordinary invitation because, um, to be perfectly honest, I know very little about the Middle Ages, very little about Nordic history, uh, and only a limited amount about civil war, and then, of course, in colonial and post-colonial Africa. So this has been something of an uneven exchange. I've learned a hell of a lot about a lot of things, and they probably know a little more about Africa than they ever wanted to know, uh, and is ever going to be useful again. Um, but my thanks to you all. It's been an extraordinary week, and I've re I really really have learned an amazing amount. Um, the, when um, Hensiakwa wrote to me about uh, this lecture, he asked me specifically to speak about uh, issues of conflict and um, its conceptualization, order disorder amongst Swana. I should say um, that, that prima facie, uh, there's a good reason to do this. And the good reason is that um, in so much of, of Western European thought, be it philosophy, be it political science, be it um, critical history, there's a tendency um, almost autonomically to compare Africa, to treat Africa as though it were the Middle Ages. Often, I should add, in a quite racist form, um, i.e. Africa exists somewhere in our past um, and therefore are not coeval with us. That turns out to be a rather misguided view. But nonetheless, the, the history of African political formations and the history of the Middle Ages, I think, inseminate each other really quite quite deeply, which is precisely why I've learned as much as I have over this last week. Um, I would say also, just by way of um, sort of a, a footnote to my anthropology colleagues in the room, I'm going to go back into a very classical moment in anthropology, right? Uh, these days, anthropologists write very little anymore about classical African formations or, or um, <clears throat> pre-colonial societies in the way that I'm going to pre-colonial colonial societies in the way I'm going to discuss. Anthropology is fragmented extraordinarily, um, <clears throat> and it's very difficult to have those discussions anymore. 
which is a less strange because um, the, the whole notion of customary Africa and pre-colonial, early colonial forms have come back to haunt us. Uh, Jean and I have are publishing, it's coming out next month, a book on chiefship in contemporary Africa. And it's entitled Chiefship, Capitalism and the State in Contemporary Africa. Why? Because chiefs have landed up being extremely important in contemporary Africa. They control, for example, much of the ex extractive economy. They control enormous distributions in global land deals. Uh, the, the, one of them uh, is a CEO of, of a... Um, a South African tribe called the Buffalo King, which is quoted on the London Stock Exchange. Um, so uh, one is not talking about, as it were, a dead tradition, but the way in which forms that have a long history recombine themselves, reconstruct themselves, and enter into the contemporary. So even though my frame right now goes back to classical issues, nonetheless, those classical issues haunt the present in profound ways. What is more, the way that Africa continues to be represented in much, especially in the US media, literally still belongs to the heart of darkness. It still belongs to an idea of Africa that's prehistorical in the way that Hegel represented it, um, that, that is primitive, um, that, does, that is ahistorical, um, etc., uh, which is a bit of an irony because, in fact, if all African systems were purely self-reproducing, we'd have no human history at all, uh, a small <laughs> conundrum for, for historiography in general. Um, so with that uh, framing, uh, I, I move into, uh, as it were, the, the classical tradition. Now, anthropology in the classical tradition, uh, despite its own deconstruction of, of radical oppositions between primitive modern, pre-colonial, colonial, et cetera, et cetera, has nonetheless sustained those things in many forms, as it were, rather cryptically. And it's imported them into its own taxonomies, very often for the purposes of comparison. Uh, we talk about patrilineal and matrilineal societies as though there were two forms of kinship system um, in, in pre-colonial Africa, which is actually empirically deeply untrue. But nonetheless, the point of those comparisons is to ask comparative questions. And that is to say, what are the corollaries of these particular forms? Taxonomy and classification becomes, as it were, the, the basis of comparison and what much of anthropology in its, um, in its heyday thought of as its social science scientific, here the emphasis on the scientific dimension to it. Now, I, I say that because, of course, part of the medieval project is a comparative project, and what is really interesting about it is the effort to look at 12th century Norway in relation to Afghanistan or in relation to Guinea-Bissau, uh, Bissau, etc. And so I see what I'm going to say as part of that, a part of that contribution at the same time as I'm about to deconstruct oppositions. And the opposition I'm about to, to deconstruct most dramatically is one that's actually hung on the longest. And that is between decentralized and centralized political systems. Um, now, the reason it's hung on so long um, has a, a number of, of interesting epistemic dimensions to it, partly because uh, the, the discovery, as it were, in, um, with the publication of African political systems in 1940, that one could conceptualize political systems without centralized authority, without government, uh, really called into question the Hobbesian tradition in political theory. After all, uh, if one takes as a priori, one has to have government to have politics, and suddenly you don't have government, yet you have politics, one has a, a philosophical problem. How do you have um, a social contract without Leviathan? How do you conceptualize the nature? And if, uh, why this has remained interesting is that analogy has been used to take on some extremely important contemporary problems. One of the most notable, perhaps, being Barkun's analysis of the Cold War system, how we managed to have a Cold War for as long as we did without actually war breaking out, how the balanced opposition of the global system worked. He used the, the, the model of the newer in the Sudan, most famous asymmetrical and, and a, um, a central, uh, decentralized system, probably in the history of documented Africa. If, if not um, beyond that. So um, th this contrast, the contrast between the centralized and decentralized systems really has featured very centrally in thinking about politics, thinking about government, thinking about the very nature of what it is that constitutes the social. Uh, it also has uh, another dimension to it, and that is 
the dimension of um, the transformation of categorical into evolutionary thinking. The acephalous, the decentralized system, political system, society, stands the centralized system as the primitive to the modern. And why this is significant is that it has had a kind of a, a deep politics of knowledge implication to it. For the, for the longest time, development models, as applied from the global north to global south, uh, the, the world formerly known, with apologies to, to Prince, the world formerly known as third, um, the, the global south, uh, its, its evolutionary telos was held to move from the decentralized to the centralized. And this reflected a position in political theory that took um, uh, the functional specificity of systems to be indexical of their evolution. So what anthropologists took to be categorical distinctions, um, the basis of making generalization about different political systems, became, as it were, the template, the model for talking about political evolution. Um, and in effect, those kinds of evolutionary models have bedeviled archaeology, Archaeological theorists had to spend an enormous amount of time arguing against that kind of telos because it turns out that in many contexts, centralized, uh, decentralized systems have followed uh, centralized systems in time, which in fact is impossible given the logic of modernization and indeed of functional specificity. So what does that tell us about the nature of these forms and how do we begin to theorize them? Um, is it possible to arrive, in other words, as, at an historical theory of non-capitalists, of, of early colonial, post-colonial societies uh, that can account for the relationship between centralized and decentralized forms, that can see these not simply as teleological but as historical? And here another footnote. In categorizing these systems as centralized, decentralized, etc., etc., there's been one shared characteristic, and that is the tendency to see both as self-reproducing. The great anthropological um, um, sort of tradition has tended to see political systems, endogenous political systems, as self-reproducing. Uh, acephalous systems do it by virtue of resolving conflict through um, vengeance, through reciprocal violence, etc., etc., through, as it were, the workings of the in internal structures, lineages, clans, etc., etc., which become units of self-help, units of retribution, and so on. And um, pre-colonial states reproduce them themselves by basically simply not having any endogenous uh, mechanisms that would allow them to change. They become self-reproducing. Uh, even at their most sophisticated theorization, uh, this has been the case. Uh, the most sophisticated theorization, perhaps coming out of the well-known Manchester School, um, typified by Max Gluckman, who made the argument that actually African systems are like all other systems. They're fields of conflict. They endogenously about conflict. The idea that, that um, Africans are, are sort of noble savages in the Rousseauian tradition is simply garbage. Africans, like everybody else, pursue their own utilities. They engage in struggles for power. They engage in struggles over interests. They, they um, compete over land, etc., etc. But, argued Gluckman, what differentiated those systems from the, the, the capitalist world is the absence of internal contradiction. Gluckman was actually a Marxist, and he argued that what characterized capitalism was a contradiction between labor and capital, and that the, the, the um, engagement of labor and capital was what gave dynamism to the history of capitalism, and he envisaged, of course, uh, like many Marxists, its post-capitalist future. Pre-capitalist societies, he said, didn't have contradiction. They had conflict. They had endemic conflict, and it was conflict that motivated political action, but... The point about that conflict was that insofar as it engaged rebellion, never changed the structure in place. It simply changed the personnel who occupied the, um, those structures. So he'd argue, for example, um, arguments over uh, the Zulu chiefship or the Zulu kingship would engage people very, very bitterly. They'd kill each other, do all kinds of things that engage in civil war. But the whole point was, in fact, to mediate succession to the Zulu kingship. So the winner became the Zulu king, just like the previous Zulu. And he went on to say, the cycle of rebellions not only reproduced the social form, but valorized it. After all, what was the point of killing and being killed, of taking, of taking those kinds of risks, of engaging in those kinds of political struggles, if you're saying the office that you're fighting for is worthless? 
The very fact that you do it in those terms means that the cycle of rebellion reproduces values in place. And so those kinds of societies continue to reproduce themselves. So whether uh, one's view of, 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 of Africa was of the noble savage a la Rousseau or of a Hobbesian man in centralized systems, nonetheless they were, self, they were ahistorical in that sense. They had process but not history. That is to say, their, temporal, their temporality, by which is meant the experience of time, was cyclical and not linear. Um, and in fact, no anthropological theory of African politics ever broke out of that. There were one or two bold attempts. Uh, the boldest attempt was probably Edmund Leach's in Highland Burma, which is an absolutely brilliant, uh, if you want to read one anthropology book, it's one of the greats to read. Um, what uh, Leach does is look at the Highland Burmese political system over 150 years. And what's interesting about the system is it's the first one to really question the relationship between centralized and decentralized polities. Why? Because Highland Burma, over 150 years, oscillated on the one hand between the highly organized, highly elaborate Shan state, which was deeply ritualized, surplus-producing, classical, as it were, pre-capitalist um, pre state, and on the other hand, um, resolved over um, various time spans into what looked really like a peasant formation without much political articulation. Um, in the, in um, uh, Myanmar, Myanmar, in Burmese, it was called the Gumlao system. Um, and it appeared to, to, to simply be made up of congeries of households in, in uh, subsistence rice cultivation. And somehow the system moved between these two extremes over time. And Leach came out with a very brilliant account of this by arguing that, in fact, each of those systems did have internal contradictions. And when those contradictions manifested themselves, it pushed, as it were, the way the world worked in the opposite direction. Uh, it would take me the rest of my time to, to explain how it happened. Take it from me and read the book. If that's how it happens, right? And the, but the point was that, in the end, Leach was also criticized for making the argument that this equilibrium was oscillating. That is to say, there was nothing internal to this model that allowed the breakout on either end, such that the Shan state could become something beyond, as it were, an impending breakdown into the other form, or that, that, um, that Burmese peasants would become anything else but eventually recaptured into the Shan state. So this was an oscillating equilibrium, and it led to a debate in anthropology between him and his critics over how one reads this. This is all prefatory to um, what I'm going to suggest um, is an alternative which is that there are ways of theorizing the endogenous historicity of African political systems, both um, centralized and decentralized, of embracing them within a model in the kind of way that Leach challenged us to do, but in fact to um, rethink this in a, in, in a theoretically slightly different manner, one that does try to historicize African political systems. And I hope, by analogy, is useful to thinking medieval uh, history as well, where, after all, um, of the, the, the sagas I've read, and by the way, uh, the, the people I'm going to talk about also have something akin to sagas in the form of epic poems, um, and tell not unsimilar stories about particular kings and, and so on, but also worlds in which peasants, kings, etc., are vying for uh, autonomy on the one hand, sovereignty on the other, in extremely complicated political fields, fields that I don't pretend to know anything about or comprehend, but since you do, I hope we'll be able to um, tell me whether anything I'm going to say has any applicable usage at all, except to make the challenge um, that any theory of history ought also be, to be a theory of society, and any theory of society ought also to be a theory of history. And that is always the challenge in taking on any historical epoch. How one theorizes passages through that, that epoch, its entries, its exits, its linearities, its contradictions. Now, anthropologists have uh, an awful tick, and that, that's TIC. Um, we have ticks as well, but that's in the field. <laughs> right? um, and that tick is to say, if, if you want a theory, I'll give you a people. I'll give you a case, right? Um, Levi-Strauss once said, give me one case and I'll show you the world. That might be a little bit extreme, um, but many anthropologists argue, give me a case and at least I'll ask some interesting questions about the world. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And this is where I'm going back quite a long time in my own work, although, as it happens, uh, I'm still haunted by it, 
as every anthropologist is, is haunted by it. Um, and I'm going to talk about the peoples I know best, um, a group of, of, of uh, polities known collectively as, as the Twana peoples of South Africa. Um, they are uh, part of the second largest language group in southern Africa. They speak a language known as Sichuana or Sutu as well. Um, and uh, they are a, a relatively large population. The country Botswana is the country of the Twana. Um, so they're not just a, a, a small tribe somewhere. Uh, they represent the population of a nation state as well as the second largest indigenous population in, in South Africa. Uh, they have an extraordinary and extraordinary interesting history. Um, but uh, what I'd like to, to do is portray this starting from when we have a historical record, which is basically the early 19th century. In the early 19th century, there were approximately um, 70 polities that were going to be embraced in the Tswana world. Of course, no ethnic group has existed since time immemorial. The Tswana came into being uh, around 1760, 1770. They didn't have a name as a people. They became named as many ethnic groups do by virtue of the opposition to other peoples. And that's another long, uh, as, it, as Foucault would call it, an historical archaeology, uh, not for now. But the point at which I want to break into this uh, is extraordinarily fascinating as a geography. And we have very, very detailed records. Why? Because there were missionaries around from 1802 onwards who were documenting, these people, and, and several of them actually spoke a fluent Sichuana. So we have dictionaries already from the 1815, 1830, and then again almost decadal after, after that. Um, and many, fortunately, much of this archival record is also visual. So we have drawn maps, we have pictures, etc., etc., i.e., uh, daguerreograph pictures late in the century, but the kinds of diagrams that one can read, as it were, to check the archive. Uh, and some of those things are very interesting. For example, um, which get lost in translation. Uh, one of the things that is startling um, is when you read uh, Sichuana translations, you realize that translation itself is complicated. For example, in Sichuana, the term for space is the same as the term for time. So when people are describing different spaces, they're also describing different temporalities. And that turns out to be actually quite important in understanding how the dynamics of this world work. Because in fact, space and time are seen from within the ontology of this world to be mutually constitutive and inseparable. And as I say, that will make a difference. But if you looked at their map in 1805-1810, what one saw was an extraordinary distribution of polities, none of which could be reduced to anything that is characterized as a, a sort of a traditional polity, in the sense of the sorts of things that are described in any number of anthropology texts, like African political systems or whatever. On the one hand, there were a couple of massive chiefdoms, kingdoms, one of them imperial. Right? Um, its capital was larger than any colonial city in Africa until 1890. Okay? It had a population of 120,000 people. That's big. On the other hand, um, you know, 300 kilometers down the road are groups of households that look basically like Chayanov's Russian peasants. No political organization to speak of, fiercely autonomous, no clans, no lineages, individual households reproducing very much like a bilateral system of the kind that we, we've been speaking about in, in, in Norway, um, in medieval Norway. So here's this, and between the two are um, polities of very different scales. Um, and what's interesting about them is as they are documented, it's clear that these are not taxonomic types that uh, 30 years later, that massive empire splits and becomes two chiefdoms, one of which actually splits again and lands up 40 years later looking exactly like the autonomous um, peasant households down the road. On the other hand, one group of autonomous households uh, into what is now middle Botswana, um, about, I'd say, a decade, a generation and a half later, approximately 42, 43 years later, is absorbed into a huge 
kingdom, what, what is now actually the Bangwato kingdom in Botswana, whose, um, whose uh, uh, king became the first president of Botswana, Suretsakama. Um, so we're talking here about, in other words, not a taxonomic type, nor are we talking about simple ruptures. We're talking about dynamic histories. What the theoretical issue becomes then is, how do you account for this? After all, this didn't occur as a result of colonialism. At this point, there are no col co colonialism comes in 1885, right? The first traders come in the 1850s, fully half a century later. The missionaries, one or two wandering around, who are being incredibly unsuccessful at converting anybody. The famous David Livingston, you've read about him, managed to convert one guy right? in his entire life, one guy, and he actually gave up his Christianity 10 years later. This is not major success, okay? So um, one is not talking about a world in which there are endogenous forces. There are internal forms of trade, there are internal forms of, of aggression and inter-chieftain uh, uh, engagement, but this is not an exogenous... And why I say this is that um, an enormous amount of social theory accords the pre-colonial world history when somebody comes along and makes it. Um, the Hegelian, you know, Africa has no history until the Europeans come along. Hugh Trevoropa says exactly the same thing not that long ago. Um, and even now, so, mu so much of uh, contemporary state theory is founded on conquest. This, in fact, is not what this is about. This is much more complicated. Okay? And so, um, in making this argument, I'm making an argument also against African historical orthodoxy uh, that has only been able to find explanation either in that or in Mayasu's classical historical accident. Something happens. We don't quite know what it is. Um, it's kind of like getting cancer or something. It just sort of happens. Um, we don't know why, and so we have, have something else. Um, so, how do we account for these systems? What's going on here? Um, now, in effect, um, in order to even begin to answer that question, um, one has to break into one of these polities at some point. Okay, it's simply for the sake of description, you can't describe all sixty-five at a time, um, and so on. But let me do it this way. And here, I, I actually do follow the Leachian model of breaking into a system somewhere and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, if you look at a centralized system, and I have the one called the C.D. Baralong, the one that I know, whose history I know best, and which happens to be the best documented of them all for, um, as a result of an historical quirk. Um, C.D. Baralong in uh, the, the mid-19th century is a, a, a well-centralized well polity. Okay? Um, now, what's interesting about it, let's start with its economy. Its economy is predicated on, as many African mixed economies are at the time, on a mixture of agrarian production, of agriculture, and of pastoralism. Um, in fact, this is the, the standard Southern African uh, pattern until you get into the Tsetse fly belt, in which that becomes impossible. You skip into East Africa and West Africa, where it becomes possible again. Um, so ecologically, this is a, a fairly classical thing. Uh, the economy is heavily gendered. Right? Agriculture is a domain of women, and pastoralism is a domain of men. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, in fact, there's a, a very tight symbolic relationship between the way in which the harvest is, is conceptualized and women's fecundity, the birth process, reproduction. Uh, is, and in a longer moment, uh, I would talk about that, but simply take what I'm saying at, at face value. Agriculture is taken to be uh, basically unstable. Crops fail a lot. Why? Because this is, in effect, uh, a classical semi-arid zone. Approximately between 16 and 21 inches of rainfall a year, which, as anybody who knows in ecology knows, that is going to give you uh, a crop failure approximately two in every seven years, which is roughly what, uh, what has happened since we have recorded um, ecological data, which is since 1867. Um, as a result... Uh, Agriculture is subsistence. That's what people, that's what feeds people because nobody kills their cattle. I'll come back to that in a moment. But nonetheless, agriculture is critical in ordinary subsistence. But it's also more than that. It is the way in which males appropriate female labor in order, in effect, to feed their households, to engage in hospitality, etc., etc. Uh, what this means also is that this is a world in which there's plenty of land, but labor is short. 
right? Because ultimately, agrarian production requires a, a fair amount of labor, especially things like broadcast agriculture, maize, millet farming, uh, grain, grain farming. Uh, as a result, um, and this is very common in Africa, this is a world in which if you ask what wealth is, wealth is in people. That's a phrase, by the way, these days attributed to Jane Geyer, actually first penned by, my, by, by Max Gluckman in 1949, later by Kenneth Little in 1951. Uh, the idea of wealth in people is that it is not simply um, that you count people, you know how rich you are, but rather that the kinds of relations that um, your control over people gives you access to is about labor, it's about... Uh, Reproduction. Polygamy is about labor, in effect. Um, it is about creating property units, uh, and there's a complex story to that, um, about uh, but creating labor units in order to make family estates. Cattle, on the other hand, are high-prestige objects. They only consumed under conditions of sacrifice or of rites of passage, um, initiation rites, marriage, death. Um, you, you know, if, if uh, a cow dies, uh, it may be eaten, but you would never kill a cow simply to eat it. Uh, small games and small stocks there. And um, South African, Southern African peoples have what uh, James Ferguson have called the bovine mystique. Cows have a mystique to them. They're aesthetic. People, you name your cows. Cows have names, they have histories, they, uh, people write poems about them. Uh, in fact, my single pr uh, proudest um, uh, tapestry that I was given by the then president of Botswana um, has champions underneath it. It's a huge red tapestry <laughs> and it's made up totally of cows. <laughs> and uh, it was later it and he gave it to me and said, you see, John, remember this. This is the most important thing you'll ever know about Botswana. Uh, and he's right. <laughs> right. Um, the point about cattle is that they, they represented masculinity, but also they were the means of extending forms of patronage. You married with them, bride wealth, Bokhadi in Sichuan, which is an interesting term because Khadi is the suffix for woman. Bo is the abstract term in um, African, the Bantu languages are very complicated and their prefixes carry all kinds of uh, semantic and semiotic features. But Bokhadi literally means womanhood. And so the cattle transferred in Bridewell in Bukhadi transfer the labor power and the fertility, the, the reproductive fertility, to the, um, the husband's lineage um, into which she, she's going to marry. In other words, marriage requires cattle. Right? Not only does, uh, does marriage require cattle, but cattle is a way of establishing clientages of the kinds of patron clientage uh, we've been talking about as well. Why? Because there are various, various ways of loaning out cattle for which one expects in return political fealty, for which one, return, uh, one, one expects support in court cases, for which one expects uh, support in various kinds of crises. So cattle become the means, the capital for uh, creating wealth in people. In fact, um, there are all kinds of terms. There are over 130 uh, idiomatic terms for cattle in Sichuan. Uh, but you know, cattle are gods with wet noses. Cattle are, in the modern times, cattle are on Barclays Bank, um, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, Tswana, even to this day, will transfer, uh, transfer um, convert cattle, uh, money to cattle wherever they can. Because cattle have the capacity, in fact, they're more productive as, as capital than money because the return in terms of, of reproduction is higher than the 5% the, the that you get at Barclays Bank. So uh, actually, it, in fact, there was a guy who won, um, the, the, uh, won a fortune at a casino in South Africa. Um, I think it was, I don't know, 120,000 US dollars. <laughs> and he went straight off and bought cattle. Right. Um, and it, the South African papers were staggered with it. And he said, well, they, you know, if I put this $120,000 in the bank, you know, at the end of next year, it's going to be worth maybe $130,000. If I buy my cattle wisely, they, they, this is a, approximately 45 cattle, I'm going to have about 60 cattle. And that's worth a hell of a lot more than $120,000. In other words, this is, this is about making wealth, but also its transferability into um, the creation of labor, etc., etc of marriages, of children, and so on, is very powerful. So cattle stand to, to, to um, agriculture as maleness to femaleness, but also um, there is something else here. And that is that female agriculture occurred around the peripheries of the chiefdom. The chiefdom, when it was centralized, had a very powerful central capital. It was called Motse, 
which is town, tremendously um, powerful symbolic loading. The, 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 the plural for Mozi in Sichuan is Metze, which is water. Water is foundational. In fact, the, the, the Botswana currency is called Pula, which is rain. Um, the, the, the centrality of the idea of, of water, of fecundity, of fertility, um, and the capacity to make lives is critical. The, the, the chief... Um, again, bo, uh, the, the, again uh, the abstract word Bohosi. Bohosi is chief or king. Bo is, is uh, the, the office. Bohosi stands at the center of the town, right? And political activities occur in the town. Cattle come back to the town to, um, to, into homesteads where there are, are cattle buyers and so on. Um, and so the town is the center of the political world. It's where you mobilize wealth in people. It's where you play the games of creating clients, etc. That's where politics is, and it occurs around the chiefship. On the other hand, um, the domestic economy is in the periphery. It's in the fields. The fields are outside of the village, and it's where women are. Women tend to go uh, in order to cultivate. Now, what that produces is actually an interesting contradiction. Why? Because of the following. Uh, in order to plough the fields, uh, one has to get away from the centre. And uh, in, in effect, this ecology is such that uh, in order to actually maximize rainfall and so on and so forth, controlling where you are in space and time is absolutely critical. The rain comes, and as everybody who, who knows Botswana knows, you've got to plow within 48 hours. If you plow within 48 hours, your return on uh, the fertility of the land is maximal. Allow another two hours, oh, yeah, two, two hours another two days to go, and fertility starts to drop, and it actually drops quite dramatically. After two weeks, the same rainfall is basically worthless. Your field you might as well be in the midst of a drought. In other words, being there is critical. Now, part of the problem, well, that, that suggests, that, of course, controlling decentralization, the women's world, is critical. But the counter is the political centra centrality of the chiefship and the town. Why? Because chiefs want to hold people in the town, not merely for purposes of politics, but for another reason entirely as well. That is to say, the chief himself has royal fields. And he is entitled, by virtue of his chiefship, to demand tributary labor from women from every um, section of the chieftain to go and plough his fields first. Now, it, by law, you cannot just go to your fields. You have to have chiefly permission to do it. So what chiefs do is hold people on to the centre as long as possible, right? And de deploy them to plough his fields at the optimum time after the rainfall. Meanwhile, um, and of course, fine anybody who refuses and goes off their fields too early. So there's constant tension, uh, especially women um, and their, their, their um, older children chafing to get out to their own fields and chiefs trying to hold them together. And this tension between centralization and decentralization is built into the heart of the economy. Now remember that because it's going to become important as we proceed. Space-time, centralization, decentralization is going to become very important. Now let's shift for the moment to the chiefship itself. I glossed over that very quickly. Chiefship um, is uh, really very subtly constituted in the Twana world. Uh, Kantorovich would be delighted. There are two bodies to this chief, to this king. Um, but unlike the medieval two bodies of which he spoke, uh, it is the later two bodies uh, that become um, become consequential here. The two bodies are between the office and the office holder. And they clearly marked in Sichuana, the chiefship is Bohosi, any given chief is Horsi, and nobody makes a mistake between the two. The chiefship is an idealized office. Um, it re, you know, if you ask people about it, they'll string off dozens and dozens of proverbs about what a proper chief is. And basically, a proper chief um, is um, somebody who is um, the giver of the law. He's known as Setlabong Lao, which means the apex of the law. Uh, the, the law converges, and uh, Tswana have a very, very complex legal system, hierarchized. Uh, they're 
legendary. I mean, they, they taught in every comparative law course anywhere. Anybody who's read rules and processes will know that. Um, it's a legal system uh, with a very um, elaborate sense of notions of the evidentiary, of the notions of argumentation, uh, of the way that judgment works, the way that cases work, etc., etc. But this converges in the chief. And this, this, of course, is centered in the village as well. What is more, um, the chiefs are the chiefship is expected to be democratic. That is to say, people are expected, expect chiefs to listen to public complaint, uh, to hold regular meetings at which public affairs are discussed. Um, a, it is said that a chief who doesn't listen to his people will no longer be chief very quickly. So there's a, a sense of um, a kind of dialectic between the office and the office holder with very um, clear um, expectations. And those expectations are congealed in a concept called Bukhosi or Bontle, which means good government. Bontle actually means more than good. It means beautiful. It means uh, aesthetically pleasing. It means morally pure. Um, and uh, if you ask uh, Motswana what is good government, um, she or he would say to you, well, it's actually everything about the good life. It's, it's kind of almost, almost straight out of, out of lock, actually. Um, it's, it's the good life. It means a fair and equitable um, life. It means protection from, from uh, famine. It means good rainfall. The chief is, is, is responsible for rainmakers who bring good rainfall. And good chiefs are remembered as those who've done it, even though there were droughts sometimes in their, uh, their periods. Uh, there's a lot of tautology to good government, as it is everywhere. Uh, democracy is one huge tautology. Um, and uh, basically, uh, and it goes down to, in, in the colonial period, dealing with colonial col the colonial government, as well. Uh, did this chief bring us dams? Did she or he ensure that we have clinics? Were schools built during their reign? All of that belongs to good government. Um, and um, in that sense, it, it actually is kind of pre-postmodern in a way, where we don't talk anymore about ideological differences between regimes. We simply talk about who can deliver the goods. Uh, is it the Democrats or the Republicans? Yeah, as, as Jules Nyerere once said, uh, a one-party system with two factions. Um, and arguing over who can be, you know, who can basically do you in better than the others. Um, in this sense, this idea of good government is about literally performance. And the, the theory goes that the degree to which a chief delivers good government as measured in the, uh, the various idiomatic structures captured in the notion of bohosi, notion of chiefship, is the degree to which he should enjoy legitimacy. Now, in the period we're talking about, they're all he's with one exception. Um, he should enjoy concomitant legitimacy. Now, that's all very theoretical, right? Again, that sounds kind of vague and idealistic and nice. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it has a deeply pragmatic and extremely finely calibrated form to it. And that form occurs in the context of political debate and political oratory. Um, a chief has around him a cabinet um, of, of advisors, and then there are a council of, 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 um, of, of uh, sub-chiefs of... of um, headmen, really, who are uh, heads of the various units that make up the chiefdom, all of which are structured just like the, the, the um, chiefship as a whole, I think the chiefdom as a whole, uh, and then there is, as it were, the public meeting. And chiefs are responsible for bringing and discussing policy with their advisors. Then, when policy is decided on, more or less as proposal, it gets taken to council of, of headmen, called the Lekotla, which, by the way, the South African government now uses as its term for uh, meetings of, of, of provincial heads, etc., etc., and then it goes to the, um, to, to the general meeting. But in each of those stages, it is not merely policy that's debated. It's also the performance of the chief. And how this works is that um, the, the chief will announce a proposal, and there will follow uh, some debate about it, and somebody will get up and make a comment about the chief himself. Right. Now, um, for reasons that are too complex to go into here, but nonetheless, uh, around the chiefship usually develops two factions. A chief's faction, his own supporters, usually his cabinet and various others, and then, uh, then people who uh, usually support one of his relatives or uh, basically emerge as an opposition. Um, and... Uh, 
they, in any case, even if they, there's a feeling that there ought to be, as it were, a loyal opposition, that, that uh, they ought, the chief ought to have people who question him. And one of those people will get up and he will enunciate a whole bunch of, of platitudes about the chief. A chief is this, a chief rules by the people, Hosi Kehosi Kamarafe, a chief is a chief with, with the people, with, uh, with the nation, uh, a chief ought to wave his people with winnowing fans, a chief is always there for his people, and then, and then we'll say, well, um, you know, I, I uh, have been thinking about this. Uh, now, you notice those are all platitudes, right? They're all about we this, we that, we the other. And then the, the, the coding will shift to the first person singular. But I, Chief X, I, Chief Marumowa, will tell you this. You have not been here when we've come to, to ask uh, um, for something from the chiefship. You haven't built us a school which, which was promised us. You haven't done this. And slowly argue for a divergence between the ideal and, and in fact, performance. Whereupon, um, a, one of the chief's own factions will get up and he'll, he'll uh, sort of do a rebuttal, say, enunciate similar kinds of, of idioms about the office, but then he'll, he'll try to draw a convergence between performance. Ah, you see, chief may, may not have built us a school yet, that's coming next year, but you see he built us a dam, and that dam is feeding 25 families over there, and what's more, he, he wasn't here when you said he should be here, but that was because he has ta had taken a cart with 25 bags of grain, and he was giving it there. In other words, he was present but in another form. And so this argument between the divergence or the convergence between the ideal of office and, and its reality. Uh, again, it, it'll take me too long to explain exactly how this works in any particular. But what is argued for here is either a convergence or, and there's a sense in which legitimacy comes to rest at the, the point at which a public agrees on the standing performance and how that is done is really interesting. After the members of the factions have spoken, um, a third party will get up and say, well, um, I neither want to talk to you, um, Chief Maromowa, nor do I want to talk against you, but, and he or she will enunciate in a generalized voice, reflecting on what has been said before, and come to a conclusion. And then somebody will get up after uh, he or her and either disagree or agree again. When six people in a row have agreed, that is the point of stasis. Because in Sichuan, six is the, uh, the optimum number of goodness. So the word for seven is shupa, which means curse. So if a seventh person were to get up, that would transform, as it were, uh, the moment of, of, of agreement to dissensus and bring along with it um, ancestral retribution and so on. In other words, it's a very, very subtle... And at each one of the... In, at the when the six get up and talk, however many until you get to six, what they will suggest then is what the resting point of the chief's legitimacy is. Um, if a chief is losing legitimacy, um, they may say, well... We've heard all this. The chief isn't here, and therefore it may be that he shouldn't give out the land anymore, that this should be a committee. I've actually heard a case of this. In, um, and um, in that case, it actually the, the chief lost the capacity to hand out land. He, in effect, became a member of a committee that did this. Um, and th these are very finely gradated notions. Now, what this suggests is that, um, in fact, there is a movement up and down in legitimacy. And some um, chiefs emerge extremely powerfully. And, you know, if they, they give a word, their commands are followed. Chiefs who lose legitimacy can ask for all kinds of stuff, including, for example, commanding tributary labor, and have people say, sorry, um, you know, you, you can't have this um, because you're not a real chief. Um, and when people become not real chiefs, is the moment at which they tend to lose control over centralization of the polity. That's when people disappear, they try to find them, they can't do it, and that's when, in effect, um, one of two things happens. Either there is decentralization, and a, as it were, a pathway away from political centralization, or an, an alternative arises and usurps the, 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 um, the chief and somebody, usually a member of that, uh, that opposing faction, um, will, will argue that, that uh, he is the rightful chief. Um, the interesting thing about African chiefship and our stereotypes about them, we assume that they're hereditary. Right? And they framed ideologically as though they were hereditary. If you ask anybody, what is the rule governing succession to office, I'll tell you primogeniture. Primogeniture is actually not a rule. 
primogeniture is a principle which can, in fact, be written into rules in a variety of ways. Now, the same Max Gluckman, when he was a prisoner in, in uh, Central Africa of the colonial regime, um, did two things. One thing was that he learnt um, the St. James Bible off by heart, which seemed a grotesque waste of time. And the other was that he re-theorized the nature of positive law as basically an American realist. And he came up with the argument that any rule that you add to a body of rule will not, in fact, foreclose the possibilities of contestation, but will open them up. Um, and he went, to, he went about demonstrating this with extreme elegance in respect of Africa. Whether it holds outside is another question. But um, the, the rules of primogeniture always have secondary rules. So amongst the, the, the Tidi, the, the eldest son of the previous chief, by his first wife, is his heir. question is, who's his first wife? Is his first wife the first married or the, uh, the, a, a member of the most senior uh, descent group into which he's married? Big debate. Not foreclosed. Um, and uh, either might happen. What is more, Tswana, like many African patrilineal peoples, practice the leveret nasorit. Uh, every male under those conditions has to have an heir. Now, uh, let's say that hence Jacob, um, um, had an older brother who died in infancy, his job is to marry a wife in <coughs> his name because that man has got to have an heir. Now, comes along his, his five kids by his own and by, by that woman, and um, his own kids claim his chiefship. One of the, the, uh, the, the sons of, of the woman married in the name of his older brother said, no, no, wait a moment. Uh, he's not the oldest. Uh, he wasn't the chief at all. He was only the regent for his dead older brother, whose sons are therefore senior to his own natural heirs. And believe you me, this stuff happens all the time. What is more... Women who are barren or have children who die young have sorrow sisters who, quotes, enter their houses and bear children in their name. So it's quite possible to have two biological parents who are not your legal parents. What is more, one of the most famous chiefs of the 20th century, a man called Lotla Moreng, had legal parents who didn't even live at the same time. Right? He's, uh, the lever and the sorrow didn't live at the same time as one another. Um, go figure. So what this suggests is that primogeniture doesn't define a field, it opens a field. And what that means is that anybody who is in office may be said to have been regent acting for the real person in office. And that's exactly how those genealogical debates happen. So when a person becomes no longer a real chief, he is open to the possibility of a succession dispute. And at the same time, of course, uh, may also lose control over centralization. That's when he's most vulnerable as well. So what this suggests, and this is a very truncated version, believe me, the complexities get enormously um, convoluted because those genealogical arguments are also, because it's a patrilineal society, i.e. it doesn't have patrilineages, but it reckons descent patrilineally, um, the ways in which you make claims to office are not simply given. There are always multiple ways for all of these reasons, right? Because there are always any number of possible routes to claiming a sorrow, a leveret, a, a, um, all kind of, only begun. Um, the, a pretender has got to choose one. And the, one, the ones that you choose actually reconfigure seniority and juniority all around you. After all, if I'm claiming that Hansi uh, Jakob's older brother is um, really uh, the heir of, of their mutual father, what that suggests is all of his younger brothers suddenly become junior and that the, the lineage is rearranged and people who were once very powerful are now on the fringes. So when you rearrange a genealogy, it's like arranging a party list in South Africa or Israel or France. Right? What you're doing is advertising who around you is going to be powerful. And what is more, you're in fact excising some people from centers and drawing other people. You better make the right bets because in effect, many of the people involved are themselves lower order headmen. They control cattle. They control people. They may be your next opponent. So you've got these games become, I mean, Game of Thrones looks simple compared to what goes on in it. And believe me, I've watched every one of the episodes in all seven seasons. Right. Uh, it's true, I have. I don't even push a wheelbarrow. Right. Um, the point here then 
is that what we have in this so-called you know, pre, um, pre-modern system is an extraordinary degree of complexity in which there is an intern dialectic that moves and creates the possibilities through polity and eco- economy of constant potential for fissure and decentralization, the constant possibility of centralization. Now, what's interesting here is that, that this isn't an oscillating pattern. It's not like Highland Burma. Um, and in fact, my argument with Leach is, uh, despite the brilliance of the book, that Leach is actually correct empirically. Um, it is possible to move from centralized to decentralized, and I've no doubt that that happened in Highland Burma. But that's not theoretically inevitable in a system of, uh, with, the, with its own internal dialectics, because it can break out of either of those. Let me give an example. Um, one of the decentralized um, one of the, the, the chieftains that emerges decentralized, actually that broke off from the same TD chiefdom at one point when it was going through one of its decentralized weaker phases, breaks off and moves to southern Botswana. They, in fact, assert independence and they refuse any chiefship. What's more, when the colonial authorities come along, they claim that their, their land is private property they, they become literally a community in the Betchana Land Protectorate. They refuse all authority and they get away with it. Comes 1966 and Botswana becomes independent and they decide that actually they want representatives in the House of Chiefs. So they then re-centralize themselves, but out of a totally different dynamic with a completely different structure. They now are a chiefdom again almost 100 years later, no, not 100, um, 72 years later, they're achieved them again, but with an entirely different structure to any other centralized, uh, centralized Tswana, uh, Tswana achieved them in the neighborhood. Um, and so what has happened here is, in effect, a linear history. Move from part of a centralized chiefdom, managed to break away when the centralized chiefdom had lost control over its outer peripheries, declare them, literally move away, create land, create themselves as a peasantry, quite self-consciously talking about themselves as, as, as homesteaders of southern Botswana, and remain that way for the whole second half of the colonial period, and then re, uh, re-inscribe themselves with a completely different structure. Um, what this suggests, in other words, is that um, at either end of the continuum, what can emerge are totally reconstructed forms of polity that don't look anything like an oscillating equilibrium, that don't look anything like, um, a, as it were, a cycle of reproduction, but have their own linear history that is written in very much the same kind of way as a, a, a saga um, of, of the Middle Ages. That is to say, um, efforts of a king to, to gain control, a peasantry breaks away from control, a, re, a reinvigoration of control under different historical conditions. In other words, what we're talking about here is a dialectical system in the sense that dialectics are predicated on contradiction right? each of these forms has within it internal contradictions which produce the possibilities of counteraction and they're not about people simply deciding uh, that it's a good idea these are built into the very structure of the contradiction between household production and centralization women's worlds and men's worlds and these, these have visual representation when my wife and I first went to field uh, we were taught by a man called Shapiro who's a very famous anthropologist who was God's own empiricist um, and a fantastic supervisor but he never believed a word either Gene or I said which was very good pedagogic practice um, and <laughs> Um, one day he wrote me a, a, a letter and he said, well, John, have you collected maps yet? Oh, goodness, no, we haven't collected maps yet, but I would never say anything to Shap that suggests that I hadn't done what he instructed me to do. So Gina went out the next day and we collected maps. And we, she was working primarily with women, I was working primarily with men. Came home that night, both very proud of our maps, put them together and they looked completely different. <laughs> Not a single thing looked the same. There wasn't even a thing on them. It turns out that Jean's Jean's, um, map came from women. It was about the bush. It was about fields. It was about the relationship of who owned what fields and how you navigated them. And there was sort of traces out to going into Mortse, into the capital, under duress. Right? Whereas my map 
was this great hegemonic male-centric map with a chief, with a capital, etc. And out there were the women that, that, that weren't even drawn onto it, right? And this represented, in effect, a visual... This, these, this wasn't kind of a, a right or wrong. This was two ways in which, in effect, the contradictory perspectives on the world were seen. They were gendered, they, they had to do with the exigencies. And when Jean asked these women, why are they? She said, well, if we're not here, how are we going to feed our families? We're going to die, right? This is a, a materiality. It's not merely you know, a, a representation of something. It's not an ideological uh, or an idealization. This is where we live. This is how we, how we exist. This is how our husbands get grain. This is how uh, the, the, the world works. Whereas for the men, that was just something that happened. And the grain would come because that's what women did, etc., um, etc. Et and so the naturalization of the world, gendered, etc., contains within it precisely these perspectival differences. But they're part of one world, and what is more, they, they of course, uh, are, they, they themselves undergo changes over time. Um, as we move from, from centralized to decentralized, so maps change, so images of where the world now... And that's why I've, I've had to truncate this, because obviously, if I were to describe this in, in its full, uh, I would have to move to a, a decentralized and start again and tell you how it works the other way around. Um, but the point that I'm making here is that this is an internal dialectic which demands of us that we understand that these were not the kinds of systems that could be reduced to ascription, to you know, Gemeinschaft uh, a, la, a la Weber um, or whatever. These were historical systems that moved through time, that, that created empires, that, that um, created peasantries, that did, and that created the state of Botswana, whose governmental organizations are not unsimilar to those of the larger chieftains. In fact, the present is known as Tautona, which means the great lion. Um, and it's no mistaking that its first, uh, its first president was the biggest chief in the country, um, or at least the biggest entitled chief. He never became chief because the Brits banished him. Uh, the Brits tend to do these things. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, the Brits do keep getting in the way of history. Uh, they're called the empire. <laughs> right. um, but that is only the, the, the half the story that I can tell now. The other half the story, which you know I've told in Revelation, Revolution, various other places, is that this dialectic is itself, of course, not entirely encapsulated. It too lives in a world that expands and expands and expands beyond it. Not only with the coming of colonialism, but also with endogenous African history. After all, and one of the things we describe in, in that book, are the fact that these chiefs are also embedded in really complex trade routes. And the way that they mobilize the movement of ivory, the movement of cosmetics, all those kinds of things become also ways in which they mobilize their cattle, they, they uh, make clientships, they make long-distance trade net networks. Some of them create their empires out of doing just this, sometimes through marriages. You trade, you marry, you then become um, literally uh, the, the um, wife-givers to uh, neighboring chieftains. You then become the fathers and the grandfathers of their chiefs in the next generation. Uh, that's how the Swazi kingdom, actually, the Swazi kingdom was made through wealthy people converting into marriage, converting into what became a nation-state. So these are histories that are, are deeply condensed. But beyond that also, of course, is colonialism itself. One of the mysteries of colonialism, especially in the perspective of, of dependency theory, is if, if colonial capitalism worked everywhere the same way, why didn't all indigenous societies become the same kind of thing? They didn't. Some, some populations <clears throat> resisted. In fact, some were the subject of genocide. Some uh, became the object of indirect rule or direct rule in Francophonie. Some um, became new kinds of... They, some became proletarianized. All kinds of different things happened. And the, the longer story of which this is the synopsis is that it depended exactly where in the cycles of, of uh, internal dialectic that encountered colonialism. Those with very powerful um, centers did not become proletarianized. They became autonomous chieftains, like the Banwatu, in, in, which gained control over Botswana. Others, like the, like the Tzidi, who were at the, the, the point of colonialism, were actually in a kind of in-between state, neither highly centralized nor decentralized, were very easily proletarianized. They became the labor force for the diamond mines in Kimberley. Um, on the other hand, some simply relapsed into the labor forces for white settler farmers. 
farmers, those especially that, that had been peasantized along the way. Each one of these, in other words, became the, the, the form, the endogenous history, the endogenous dialectic worked itself out, had its own impact on the dialectics of colonialism itself, which is precisely why we have so many different outcomes and not simply the crushing impact of colonial capitalism working its way out everywhere in exactly the same way, which was, of course, the great critique of dependency theory in Africa. If that model was right, everybody should have become the same. Everybody should have become proletarian peasants, etc., etc., and it didn't happen that way. Quite the opposite. Um, very much more complex stories. Nigerian the emergence of market women in Nigeria is a case in point. It didn't happen that way. Um, and so uh, the, the longer story is that when we start with this kind of understanding of an endogenous his, um, historicized world, we begin to understand much better the history of the long durée, how colonialism worked, and of course how post-coloniality is working. After all, some of those chiefdoms that in fact survived intact through the colonial period and retained some degree of autonomy, not entire autonomy by any manner of means, but some degree of autonomy, have emerged as the objects of that book, Ethnicity Inc. They become ethnic corporations. That very Buffalo King that I mentioned, uh, the one that, that's listed on the on London stock, the stock market, they, their chiefs in, the, in the, the late 19th century, mobilized a very high degree of centralization by sending a cadre of young men to Kimberley to work on the diamond mines, repatriated their, their, their wages, bought their land, made their tribal terrain into private territory, over which then they controlled mineral rights when, in fact, platinum was discovered underneath their land. They are now the wholly owned um, proprietors of 80% of the world's platinum. Right? And that came because a chief realized that uh, he, he had the degree of centralization. He could actually deploy he, um, his age regiments. Armies were age reg regiments at the time as laborers, transform them from warriors into laborers, send them to mines, repatriate their wages, and enter into the colonial economy as capitalists, as, as landowners, not as laborers, not as proletarians. Um, it's that kind of dialect. And the post-colony is configured by very much the same things, which um, ethnic groups have emerged as corporations and which heaven is determined largely. So the post-colonial moment is also being heavily configured by that. Um, and in fact, in the, the, this new book about chiefship, we trace this also through Nigeria, through Sierra Leone, and various other countries where, in effect, similar kinds of things have happened, depending on how, Congo, depending on how these dialectics work themselves out from the interiority to the encounter with colonialism into the post-colonial moment is what is shaping many African local economies today, including the extractive industries, including agribusiness, and so on. That is the story. Um, and what I hope to, to sort of tell by the story is, first of all, to radically decompose the notion that um, pre-capitalist systems were self-reproducing, that had they had no historicity, that the his, so-called history was merely uh, recycled processes, that they lived in complex and different temporalities, that they weren't only fields of conflict, but were endemically feel much more complicated in their internal construction, um, that many of our evolutionary and typological stereotypes centralized, decentralized, etc., uh, are grotesque simplifications of an extremely complex historical anthropology. And I use that word advisedly because it gives reality to the notion that no theory of society uh, can be really a theory unless it's, it's historical and vice versa. That is the point that I'm making, uh, only a dialectical view of the way the societies work through time. And I don't mean dialectic in the Marx-Hegel sense. I mean something much looser about the outworkings of contradiction and the, because uh, dialectics in this sense always have excesses and deficits. They, they're simply not given uh, by, by the sorts of me me uh, mechanical processes that either Hegel or Marx envisaged. Um, but nonetheless, dialectical in the sense that um, it is the relationship between human agency and structures in place that actually make historical outcomes as they are. After all, I'm not talking about a, a story about big men, but I'm not talking in the Foucauldian sense of, of a story of history without a subject either. I'm talking about a history in which subjects and structures are constantly making each other and making the worlds that people inhabit. It's a radical view of the way that the pre-capitalist world worked. Um, it doesn't fall into any of the standard uh, paradigms. 
uh, and I'm aware of that, and I've <laughs> taken a hell of a lot of flack for that, um, because paradigmatic critique always hinges back into, but isn't it all materialism, all materialism isn't it all uh, culture? It's neither of those things. Um, but it's a way of attempting to talk to medieval historians, to historians of empire, historians of colonialism, to say that the worlds of endogeny uh, really have to be thought of in critically, um, critically dynamic ways. And given the kinds of respect that simple dichotomization of binary thinking uh, and uh, literally a return to a kind of darkest Africa image, uh, we and the rest, uh, discomforts foundationally. And that's my story for the afternoon. <coughs>